Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nova Reddy. This is Stephen Robles, and this week we have our next installment in the open forum on race that we've been doing over Zoom. This week we have special guest Ryan Bomberger from the Radiance Foundation. It's an incredible interview with a question and answer at the end. But before we get to that, we want to remind you again about our sponsor, Impact 360. We encourage you to check out their online courses on truth, worldview, and defending the resurrection. You can find out more at impact360.org and use the promo code FREEMIND to get $25 off those online courses. And don't forget to check out their gap year program. For students who have just graduated high school, they have a nine-month program where students can spend nine months at the Impact 360 Institute, get trained in a biblical worldview, learn how to defend their Christian faith, and be ready to engage culture once they leave. So check that out at impact360.org and use the promo code FREEMIND to get the application fee waived for that gap year program. And now here's our interview with Ryan Bomberger from the Radiance Foundation. We're very grateful that you guys joined us. I'm so excited, man. Ryan is, he's an amazing just brother. Him and his wife, Bethany, I, I, I want to give like this full on uh, 10 minute bio introduction, but since we're running a little bit behind them, I'm, I'm just going to say how much we love these guys. They're, they are heroes and frontliners. And I'll, at the end, we're going to give you guys, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you'll even donate because, you know, with this uh, quarantine going on, uh, they're not able to travel and speak like they normally do, which is a big way they raise funds for the organization. But we want you just to give lavishly, hopefully, to their organization, Radiance Foundation. You'll hear more about it, um, and we'll put that link up at the end. But um, Ryan is going to be talking today. We're all going to be talking today about the Black Lives Matter movement, organization, hashtag, and just kind of helping people understand, um, you know, Christians are kind of very clear on what's going on. You know, you, you kind of, the, the way often these things get uh, framed is that, you know, it, you say, man, aren't you for, aren't you for um, people's rights? Yeah, well, well, why wouldn't you be for reproductive rights? Well, uh, uh, you know, and you don't know what to say because the way they use the language, they frame it in such a way as to p- kind of pin you in a corner. And so you have to end up um, agreeing to this other whole thing that's not really what the language sounds like um, when you initially hear it. So uh, I think this kind of thing has happened with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement as well. And Ryan has been working um, for many, many years on the front line, him and his wife. And so, man, I don't know if you want to tell us just a little bit about your story, Ryan, before you jump into the presentation. But um, yeah, man, thanks for coming on and being with us today, bro. It's great to be with you guys. It's always great to be able to partner in truth. Yes, this is what we do. <laughs> this is what we're passionate about doing. So my wife and I started the Radiance Foundation about 10 years ago to try to tackle tough culture shifting issues all in the context of God-given purpose. And so we do this through videos, through our ad campaigns. We do this through um, our op-eds, an intensive amount of research. And we do a lot of writing in our articles, get published in a lot of different news outlets, town hall. This is past weekend, Father's Day, Newsweek, shockingly, uh, published my op-ed on fatherlessness and the beauty of fatherhood. So we do this through all these different means, um, memes as well, fact sheets, and we, we're just factivists. In fact, we're really passionate about fighting factophobia because we live in a culture that has all kinds of supposed phobias, but the one phobia our culture faces, whether you're talking about 
mainstream media, you're talking about Hollywood, you're talking about public education. Even our churches have a fear of the facts, and we can't be. Uh, we, we have to be willing to listen, absolutely, and empathize, but it doesn't stop there. We have to be willing to speak and live the truth, and those things have to happen concurrently. So we, we launched the Radiance Foundation. I wonder if maybe I could share some of these things. After my surreal experience, and I'm going to talk about this a little later on, with the NAACP being sued by the NAACP for mm, free speech, my wife is also an author, children's book, and we, we highly recommend this. We don't have to try to change adults' minds when it comes to a pro-life worldview. Kids are naturally pro-life. They have to be taught that it's somehow okay to harm an unborn child or harm the mother and to deprive a man of being the father that he is because fatherhood begins in the womb. So these are just some of the things that we create. And I want to show you a picture of my family, my small family. This is everybody. So this is actually, it's not everybody. This is three years ago. So there are 14 people missing. There are more people through marriage, more people through adoption. This is what define the world's low expectations looks like. This is what happens when two parents, my parents, who had three biological children, but then adopted 10. I was the first one, so obviously went well. So you can see they adopted uh, one child every year. And so 13 adopted children, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, they had 13 children, but 10 adopted children later. This is what my family looks like. This is just my brothers, my sisters, their spouses, and, and their children. No extended family. This is just the Bombergers. Some people say we look like the Duggars, but no, it's uh, the Bombergers. This is all of us. And this right here, come on, this is a fundamental truth from a biblical perspective. We have to actually have some, we have to have a foundation. And this is our foundation, not just in our family, but as a Christian, this is our, our, our worldview. We are one human race. And this is out of Acts 17, 26. And why do I say this? I don't say this to say, hey, we should be colorblind. We shouldn't see people's color. Yes, we should. I love our colors. All these different hues of skin are beautiful but they don't say anything about who we are as people. It certainly doesn't say anything about who we are as, you know, what, what are my moral convictions? Mm. What, what, what are my political worldview? What is my political worldview? This does not tell you this. We don't say to ignore it. God created color for us to enjoy and to appreciate, but never to separate ourselves by it. And that's why I guess there's one other picture I need to show you because these are the, these are the reasons why I do Everything that I do, my wife, Bethany, my, my best friend, she's also the co-founder of the Radiance Foundation, and we are just passionate about, we are passionate about what we do, um, but these kiddos right here, these are our, this, we're called the bombs, the bombergers, the bombs, <laughs> and you can see, so that's my Aaliyah to the left, my Ray Ray, Radiance is a reason for the name of our organization, my wife was a single mom for almost two years, and she knows the fear and the confusion of women facing unplanned pregnancies. I became Ray Ray's dad when she was one. I was able to officially adopt her when she was five. And then there you see my wife, Bethany, love of my life. My son, Makai, and my youngest son, Justice, who Bethany and I also adopted. I adopted two kids actually on the same day, same day in, in Georgia. That was, that was one of the best days of my life. Next to giving my life to the Lord and marrying my wife right there. Of course, mm -hmm. seeing all my kiddos born. But being able to adopt those two precious children was a God thing, a complete miracle. You, and I'm sure anyone on this, this Zoom call understands when God orchestrates, thing, orchestrates things far out of the, the reach of what we could do. And so that's kind of my, little, my background. And so let's talk about the tough, 
<laughs> the tough stuff. So we're going to talk about hmm, which Black Lives Matter. Ooh. It's kind of a, I don't know. Are, when I share the screen, are you able to actually change part of it so you can see me and still, still see the screen? So, yeah, I have it. So um, you guys can shake your head, too, at me if, if you're seeing it. But I have it set up so where they can see you talking as well. Are you seeing the SE? Um, I see. So see um, are you guys seeing that, Donna? Um, yes, yes, I'm giving okay, the thumbs great. up. Okay, cool. Thank you, Donna. All right. Ooh, so let's just dive into this. Which Black Lives Matter? Because when we hear the refrain, when we hear the hashtag, it's so much more than just a hashtag. Here's the thing. A lot of people say, well, I'm, I'm saying because I believe in the, the, the truth of it, the sentiment of it. Of course, Black Lives Matter, 100%. But it's more than, than just an idea or a concept. A concept is an abstract idea or a notion. And what happens is when that's acted upon, it's no longer an abstract idea or a notion. It's a cause. It's a movement. And today it is a heavily funded movement. Unfortunately, I can't play the video because I wanted to, for you to actually hear um, the, one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, Patrice Cullors. She explains what they meant by creating the hashtag. Um, there were three founders and the blacklivesmatter.com, Black Lives Matter. It's called the Black Lives Matter Global Foundation. Actually, on their website, they call it three different names, but I'll just call it the Black Lives Matter Foundation. And she explained why, why the refrain. She said it's actually, yes, it has to do with the race construct, but it also has to do, it's a political statement. So for people who say it's not a political thing, but the founders are saying, yes, we created it to be a, a a political thing. She also says we are trained organizers. We are trained Marxists. That's the video clip that I cannot play for you, but um, I can certainly provide the link to the video. So when she's saying um, we're defining black by not just race, we're also defining black by those who are most marginalized and it heavily focuses on homosexuality, transgenderism. So that's how she's defining black. And then she says, yes, it's a political frame. It's a political ideological frame. And that frame is in part Marxist and it's deeply political. We want to spread black power. So it's important to understand what the founders and the leaders of the movement are saying, because we hear so much from church leaders. Well, I don't think that's what they believe in. I don't think that's what they're, they're aiming for. Well, we should probably believe what the founders themselves, what the founders themselves are saying. We should probably believe what the, the websites that actually have published their manifestos say about this. And we're going to dig into this in just a moment. But here's one thing that I, I, I've written a lot about Black Lives Matter, written a lot about, of course, um, a lot of negative disparities in the black community outcomes, whether you're talking about health outcomes, educational outcomes. And I've been writing about the Black Lives Matter movement since its emergence. And one of the things that I found interesting when it first started back in 2014, it, and it had evolved I'm sorry, it emerged out of Trayvon Martin initially. Of course, that was not an example of police brutality. I'm not going to get into whether or not, you know, the validity of, you know, George Zimmerman being acquitted or not, but that's when the Black Lives Matter movement started. And the interesting thing for me was that it was always black males being harmed or killed. It, hadn't, it never had to do with black females. And I found this interesting. So I wrote this article, as you can see here, Black Lives Matter, well, sort of. And in this article, I detail how there were individuals, uh, indiv black women, at the same time Trayvon Martin was killed. Tanya Reeves was killed by Planned Parenthood. She was left to bleed for five and a half hours. 
because the abortionist refused to call 911. But yet her life didn't prompt any kind of riots, any kind of protests, any kind of hashtag, any kind of resistance whatsoever. And the question is, why not? Another individual, Lakeisha Wilson, another black woman killed by an abortionist. And, you know, you see the hashtag, say her name, but the say her name never applied to the black women who were killed by white abortionists, if you want to put it that way. Or it doesn't even uh, apply to black women who were killed by their boyfriends. In this case, if you go to this article, if you go to radiance.life slash all black lives matter, you'll see some of the examples of the individuals. Kalisha uh, James was seven months pregnant and she was murdered by her boyfriend. Homicide is the leading cause of death among pregnant women. Many people don't realize that. And so I was calling out the Black Lives Matter movement because they weren't saying a word about any of these black lives. Why not? Well, because it was abortion. Mm. And that's acceptable collateral damage for a pro-abortion movement. So I'll go deeper into that um, There's so much to talk about with that. But for years, I've been detailing these things. And so when you talk about, you know, all Black Lives Matter or the Black Lives Matter defined, this is where I really wish I could play Patrice Colors. But you really, as Christians, we have to do our homework. We have to take a few minutes. It's not actually that hard to to figure out or to divine what is is their, their worldview. And so I actually have an article. If you go to radiance.life slash BLM, you will see here where I define, well, we've already talked about the, the movement being defined by the, one of the co-founders herself. Um, but we really have to see this whole thing with, see, this is Patrice, but you can't hear her. So sorry, Patrice, they have to hear you at some other time. But this, this is crucial, a BLM, Black Lives Matter worldview versus a Christian worldview. And so here's another clip that I can't play for you, unfortunately, <laughs> but I'm going to go, I'm going to go to this article. And if you can go online, if you've got your computer in front of you, I would go online. You'll see the top 10 reasons why I will never support the Black Lives Matter movement. And in that article, there are crucial things as a Christian that we have to look at. Of course, we have to understand the policy positions of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's when people say, I'm, I'm joining a march or I'm joining this protest, but I, I don't have to necessarily agree with the worldview or the objectives of the movement. And I'm not completely disagreeing. However, whenever you show up and you're affirming a phrase, you're affirming a sentiment, you are affirming the movement. Because in that march, in that protest for Black Lives Matter, how do you, what is your plan on achieving whatever it is that needs to be righted? How, what is your plan on correcting whatever is wrong? See, the Black Lives Matter movement, they have a plan. That's why they published their manifesto in 2016. And it's really important that we actually understand what are their objectives. And as a church, we can never align with, with darkness. We can never align with a broken secular movement. And whatever that movement is, there are times when we reach out, absolutely. But we have to acknowledge. So let me just go over just a few of these points with... Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, why I will not support them. Let's start with the first thing, the premise. The premise itself, let me, actually, let me just preface it with this. Every single human life that is killed unjustly deserves justice. 
I'm not denying that that racism exists. I'm not denying that George Floyd and others like him need justice 100%. But let's talk about the premise. The premise from Black Lives Matter since its inception was that there's an epidemic of black people being killed by cops. That is not true. There's not an epidemic of black people being killed by cops. Here's the problem that I have. Mainstream media only reports when people of my complexion are harmed or killed. They're the only ones. In fact, I would, I would challenge any of you to tell me the name of a white individual that's, that's been killed by cops that's been featured in mainstream media. How about a Hispanic individual? How about an Asian individual or Native American? I looked at the stats for 2020, just this year, and I've been looking at stats every year. Washington Post keeps a great database. It's a tragic database. I don't mean great in the sense that, oh, this is wonderful information. But they keep an accurate database, the most accurate that's out there, on those who've been killed by cops. So those who have died because of fatal force. And, and I will say this too, any cop who abuses his or her power needs to be held to account, 100%. So when I look at this database, um, this is just a few weeks ago, but as of, as of a few weeks ago, there were 76 black individuals killed by cops, okay? There were two Native Americans killed by cops. There were nine Asians killed by cops. There were 46 Hispanics killed by cops. There were over 150 white individuals killed by cops. But again, the mainstream media only colorizes the narrative. We only know of black individuals harmed or killed by cops. Why is that? Because that certainly creates a, a false narrative that only black people are killed by cops. And so this is, and out of the, those individuals, by the way, 90% of them, 90% were armed with a deadly weapon. Out of the 76 black individuals who were killed by cops, and this is all tragic, but out of the 76 killed, only nine were unarmed. Only nine. So I, I, I go with the premise. Is the premise true? Is there an epidemic of black individuals being killed by cops? And the numbers don't show that to be true. In fact, if you look at the, the latest homicide stats, it's important to actually see, sorry, the screen's moving all over the place here. I'm 11 times more likely to be killed by someone of my same complexion. There's, a, there's an incredible study, and I linked to it in the article. There's a study by the University of Michigan, and the university, uh, I'm sorry, Michigan State University and University of Maryland that looked at that cops and the use of fatal force, and it found that white cops were not more likely to kill black individuals, that black cops were actually more likely to kill black individuals simply by the nature of the communities that they work in and they live in because obviously you would have a higher percentage of black cops in those communities. And so that actually debunks a huge assertion from the Black Lives Matter movement. And this isn't the only study that has shown that to be true either. So the premise itself isn't true. And this is what's important. <sighs> because when you, when you stop people, and I've been to some Black Lives Matter protests, and you ask them the question, they don't even know. They don't know the numbers. And this is important as a Christian. We are called to mourn. We are absolutely called to mourn. Um, but we're also called later on in that, in that chapter in Romans, we are called not only to mourn, but it says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. And you know what the pattern of this world is? Deception mm. and division and destruction. And so as a factivist, I, I, I want to empathize, but I also need, in order to act responsibly and compassionately, I want to know what's actually going on. I don't want to be manipulated by mainstream media. I don't want to be manipulated by the music industry. I don't want to be manipulated by even churches sometimes. So here's the second point. I'm not going to go over all 10 of these, but I, I really want to hit this one. 
if you look throughout the policy platforms and about who we are on the Black Lives Matter websites, there is no call for forgiveness or reconciliation. None. How do you move forward in harmony if we are constantly living in the discord of the past? You, people talk about mourning, but mourning has to be followed by something else. There has to be mourning. There has to be loving, which then brings transforming. If we don't get to that place, we are always at the same starting point, which is why when I talked about writing these articles for years, I, I was in Ferguson after all this happened, speaking to some pastor friends of mine, some incredible uh, individuals there. Um, six years ago, that was Ferguson. And what ends up happening is it almost feels like we go to that same starting point over and over again, because the world will never bring us to a different place. It will always bring us back to that same starting point. And this is part of what Patrice Cullors was saying about um, Black Lives Matter, what black means politically, it means black power. And so when you look at the policy platform, it's all about, and they say themselves, it was about spreading black power across the country. I created a meme the other day. And it just said, Christ before color. Mm. If that is not our approach, we're always going to have an identity problem. I'm mixed. My kids are mixed. My youngest son is black. Their identity has to be in Christ first. It is not in black power. This is why when we look at the 60s, we had the same struggle in the 60s. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X represented two radically different approaches. They both wanted to pursue racial justice. They both wanted racial justice, but they had radically different means. You had the nonviolent movement on one hand, and they had the violent movement. You had the Nation of Islam, uh, deeply racist. Malcolm X was anti-integration. And you know, in our, in our own podcast, Life is Purpose, we played some of these clips from Malcolm X, who was advocating violence. It was unambiguous. You know, We love the people that love us, and we'll hate the people who hate us. That is not a gospel-centered approach. And so even in the 60s, Martin Luther King Jr. denounced the Black Power Movement. He denounced it. He was not going to align himself with it. We have that same struggle today. So here you have Martin Luther King Jr. denounced Malcolm X. Malcolm X denounced Martin Luther King Jr. In fact, he called him, for the love, he called him an Uncle Tom. And I just need to lay this out for anybody. If you call somebody an Uncle Tom, it's not actually a put down. If you read Uncle Tom's Cabin, if you're the one who's going to give your, your life, you're going to sacrifice your own life so that others can be set free, call me an Uncle Tom for life. Because that is what Uncle Tom is. Uncle Tom was more the Christ figure, the one willing to sacrifice to set people free. So a lot of people get that, that all mixed up. So Malcolm X calling Martin Luther King Jr. and Uncle Tom. But guess what transformed America radically? It was the nonviolent movement. It was a nonviolent movement that gave us the Civil Rights Act of 64 and 65 and 68 and the subsequent ones as well. So we had that same struggle today. Do we align with a movement whose heart and ambition is at odds with a biblical worldview? And I would suggest no. Let's take a look at Movement for Black Lives. The Movement for Black Lives is actually the umbrella. It's the collective of Black Lives Matter organizations from coast to coast. They came together to meet, to actually create their policy platform. And out of that, in 2016, they published this, and it's still on their website here. You can see the the URL right there, m4bl.org. And so they describe in the About Us, I guess I should probably go to it here so I can read it verbatim. 
It says, the Movement for Black Lives, formed in December of 2014, was created as a space for black organizations across the country to debate and discuss the current political conditions, develop shared assessments of what political interventions were necessary, hello, it's all very political, in order to achieve key policy, cultural, and political wins. And I don't need to keep reading. Clearly a political thing. In 2016, the Ford Foundation, which is the world's largest um, you could call it a philanthropy. It's the world's largest population control organization. They fund billions and billions of dollars each year to politically and radically leftist organizations. They're also the world's largest funder of abortion. They committed to raising $100 million for the movement for black lives. I don't know how much has been raised since 2016 because that goes into a whole other murky area because movement for black lives and the Black Lives Matter Foundation, those are the two main ones, they're not 501c3s, so it's really hard to get a handle on how much money has actually been distributed to them. They are sponsored organizations, sponsored by other 501c3s. But that being said, let's just look at what the Movement for Black Lives says it is about. They start off saying, we are abolitionists. We believe that prisons, police, and all other institutions that inflict violence on black people must be abolished. Okay, so they're calling for the abolition of prisons and police forces, which obviously we've seen the whole police force argument out there in the public, defund police. And I find it interesting because which community is going to be hardest hit by the absence of police? Not Netflix CEOs, posh neighborhood. Not all these corporate, these corporate CEOs that are, that are funneling all kinds of money into these groups now. They're posh neighborhoods. They're going to be okay. It's going to be the very people who are crying out for justice, who are crying out for equality, that are going to be the hardest hit. So they, they call themselves abolitionists. Then they also they heavily emphasize homosexuality, where they say we center the experience and leadership on the most marginalized black people. And this has been a recurring thing with them. They pretty much equate pigmentation of skin with homosexuality. It's the same struggle, uh, transgenderism. Then they talk about we believe in transformation and a radical realignment of power. I'm not dismissing, first of all, we talk about corrupt cops, and there are corrupt cops. They certainly don't typify the entire you know, police forces across the country. But I, I find it so funny that they think that the solution is corrupt politicians. I mean, how does that work? Corruption does not undo corruption. But we always look for the political solutions and things that are far more grounded in need for spiritual solutions. Mm. So as we read on here, they talk about we are anti-capitalist down toward the bottom. We believe and understand that black people will never achieve liberation under the current global racialized capitalist system. They weren't turning down the $100 million that the Ford Foundation <laughs> was given to them. So I guess you're not that anti-capitalist. <laughs> they have not turned down any of the money from any of the other corporations over the past several months that have been just flooding them with millions and millions of dollars. Black Lives Matter Foundation just announced $6.5 million that they're going to then redistribute in grants. Um, that money came by way of capitalism. Capitalism is actually, it is the best economic means to lift people out of poverty. It's why the church in America that's why, that's why America is the most charitable nation, by the way, in the world, the most charitable nation. It's why our churches are able to do the work that they do in the communities that they live because of capitalism. Anyway, so these are just some of the, the who we are. I just want to touch on just a few other things. When they go to Black Lives Matter and 
uh, about us. This is, they explain why they, they've come to be and that they want to eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence afflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. And they go on to further explain who they are, about who they are. Um, going down here a little farther, we affirm the lives of black, queer, and trans folks. And then they list others, disabled folks, undocumented folks, folks with records, women, and all black lives. It's funny because they don't, their, their issue has never been about disability. But it, anyway, they, they'd like to group all those who are more marginalized. And I grew up with, with siblings with special needs, by the way, um, with a number of physical disabilities. That was my whole experience growing up. And so my heart has always been for those with disabilities and those with special needs. Of course, I'm a firm believer that we're all people with special needs. Uh, you know, just the, the need to love and to be loved. But when you go through and you read some of these things, it makes you question, wait a minute, how does this align with scripture? The last line here, we are working for a world where black lives are no longer systemically targeted for demise. And that brings me to this interesting part here. Systemic versus specific. We talk about systemic racism all the time. <sighs> Sometimes we don't distinguish between systemic and specific. There is systemic racism. I'm not denying that. In fact, I point out the systemic racism of the abortion industry all the time. The justice system, obviously there has been systemic uh, discrimination. Sometimes it's not always based on color. Institutions created by humankind are always going to be corrupt, 100%. But there are times when we confuse systemic with specific. There are specific cases. For instance, I could tell you many instances where I've been treated horribly simply because of the color of my skin, thrown out of a restaurant, thrown into jail for going the wrong way down a one-way street. Um, the list goes on and on. But, you know, for instance, I'll take the restaurant, for instance. The restaurant that threw my buddy and I, my buddy Kwame and I out, out um, that restaurant that refused to serve us didn't typify the rest of the restaurants in Baltimore. It wasn't a systemic issue, but there certainly was an issue with the manager and the host of that, that particular restaurant. There's a big difference between systemic and specific. We're as a, we as a country have moved away from systemic that was codified and actually supported by the state with Jim Crow laws where couldn't vote, where we had to take literacy tests and poll taxes. I mean, that was systemic. We have moved away from a lot of that. That's not to say that it all went away and all of them magically disappeared. No, but there's been significant change from the codified systemic racism to what ends up being more instances of specific racism than systemic. But let's talk about systemic racism. When they talk about, when I gave you that, that line, let me go back to that line. We are working for a world where black lives are no longer systemically targeted for demise. There is no industry, there's no institution in America that systemically targets black lives for demise more than the abortion industry. If we look at the numbers of uh, individuals who are accused of individuals that, that police are accused of killing each year via fatal force, you know, police brutality for black individuals, about 260. It's actually been decreasing over the past few years, about 260. We'll estimate it about 260 according to the Washington post in one year. Planned Parenthood kills 360 black lives every single day. And it's interesting to me when people say, well, that's deflection. You're, you're deflecting. Well, 
either all Black Lives Matter or they don't. We don't get to pick and choose who and what and where and when. So when I, who I, I decided we were launching some billboards at the Radiance Foundation. We launched some billboards in the San Francisco Bay Area, actually, Oakland area. And I worked with Walter Hoy and his wife and just really a powerful couple right there. Walter Hoy has been fighting in the civil rights movement for all of his life. Amazing, man. If you haven't connected with him yet, please connect with Walter Hoy of Issues for Life Foundation. We placed about 40 or 50 billboards in that area calling out the racism of the abortion industry. Well, we were denounced. We were denounced by the ACLU. We were denounced by Planned Parenthood. We were denounced by pro-abortion politicians. And then we were denounced by the NAACP. And I thought, what? How, how are you not on our side? The NAACP? I couldn't even... I grew up revering the NAACP. My mom had me read all kinds of books about African-American achievements and African-American organizations and individuals. And I thought, how is the organization that I grew up revering? I mean, Brown v. Board of Education being only one of their many achievements. But I thought, how are they not on our side? We're calling out the predatory abortion industry. We're calling men to responsibility of fatherhood. We were, we were highlighting all of the local resources that are available to, to those facing unplanned pregnancies. And we were denounced by the NAACP as racist and they said we gave the false impression that Planned Parenthood kills black babies. Planned Parenthood kills black babies, white babies, and every human between. According to the last annual report, 345,872. So they kill a lot of human lives. So this was crazy. So I decided I was going to write an article about all this. And I was going to call out the NAACP. And this was the name of the article. The National Association for the Abortion of Colored People. And let's just say that was not their favorite title. So they sued me. They sued the Radiance Foundation. And here, it's just crazy. A civil rights organization suing a brown guy for exercising one of my most basic civil rights, free speech. I, I use their own documentation. I link to their own documentation. They radically support abortion. They radically support Planned Parenthood. So I wrote the article, stood by the article. They threatened to sue us, to bankrupt us. And the short story is we went to federal court for two years. We lost at the first federal court by a judge who was a former, wait, who was a lifetime member of the NAACP. <laughs> and his, his wife's sister, his sister-in-law, was former president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. So he didn't recuse himself or anything. That was crazy. But then we appealed it and we won. But the whole point was, how, are, how is a civil rights organization partnering with the leading killer of black lives? Planned Parenthood kills 360 black. In fact, I want to show you this tweet from Planned Parenthood. This is right there. <sighs> Planned Parenthood tweets, if you're a black woman in America, it's statistically safer to have an abortion than to carry a pregnancy to term or to give birth. First of all, it's complete junk science. They are constantly exploiting maternal mortality deaths, which, by the way, in the United States, there are about 700 women who die because of pregnancy complications, none of which are actually solved by abortion, but 700 women a year. Out of that, about the 260 um, black women are, are, die because of pregnancy complications. Now, keep in mind, there are 259,000 abortions in the black community. So they exploit everything. But for them to say something, just imagine, just for a second, I don't need to get all political, but I'm going to get political for a second. 
Imagine if President Trump tweeted these words. What do you think the reaction would have been? I wish I could hear your reactions right now. <laughs> Craziness. I mean, if, but Planned Parenthood tweets this and nothing, nothing but silence. So when I talk about systemic racism, there are examples of systemic racism, some that are very obvious. But here's my problem. The Black Lives Matter movement announced in 2015, the Black Lives Matter leaders all met with reproductive justice groups, which are abortion groups, and they announced solidarity. They announced solidarity with the abortion industry that they would defend Planned Parenthood, they would defend the abortion industry against anti-abortion advocates, that they would make sure that they fought for access to abortion, limitless abortion for any reason. So you've got a Black Lives Matter movement saying, Actually, these Black Lives Matter, these Black Lives don't matter. The mothers who are harmed by the abortionists, they don't matter either. Because abortion is far more important than Black life. Mm. So when people say you're deflecting when you're talking about abortion, then ask them why did the Black Lives Matter leadership choose to announce solidarity with the abortion industry? And in my article, the radiance.life slash BLM, I give you the link to the solidarity statement. So you can read it for yourself. It was signed by Alicia Garza and, and several other Black Lives Matter leaders. But the whole point of that meeting was for them to say, we are one and the same. We're fighting for the same thing. So I'll call them out every day. This, we, we, have a lot of, um, we have a lot of content on our website that actually shows you the, the numbers. If you go to radiance.life slash get the facts, we have these fact sheets that help you understand what we're actually looking at. But this is, we look at all the, the things that are the top leading causes of death in the black community. You can see the list here. The top 15 causes of death combined don't even match the number of abortions in the black community. Yeah, black life matters. Black lives matter. But yet somehow we see racism in, in every institution in America, but we don't see it in the one institution that kills so this is why, in part, I will call them out for that. I will call them out for a lot of different reasons. And I just wrote an article, too, about Juneteenth. And you've all have heard about Juneteenth becoming a holiday, and I think it's important. I want, I've been writing about Juneteenth. I've had Juneteenth billboards years ago. I've been writing about Juneteenth for a long time. I think it's a great thing to be able to honor that moment when Texas finally got the memo two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. But see, isn't that how truth works sometimes? Truth takes a long time. Sometimes you've got to go the long route. But for me, that's what Juneteenth was. There was already freedom, but people just didn't know. And yet, when we look at Juneteenth and we look at how it's exploited all the time, we have to remember this. We, we hear these words a lot about collective guilt and, and sin. I spoke at a Christian college, and one of the students came up to me and goes, well, what about the collective guilt of white people in slavery? I said, okay. Collective. Is that all white people? Does that include the white abolitionists? Because they shouldn't be held guilty. I said, does it include the black individuals who were also slave owners? Not just the ones who want to set their next of kin free, but there were black freed, freed people who became slave masters who profited off of the slave trade themselves. Should they be held account to account? What about the nations, the African nations who sold off people to the slave trade. And people don't realize this. Slavery actually existed in Africa long before the transatlantic slave trade. 
there are a lot of people who should be held to account. I think it's called humankind. And so when we get into this place where we, we are here in 2020 saying, no, only certain people are guilty and you must accept that guilt. I, I think scripture is very clear. Um, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God because it's slave trade. And it's still happening in Africa today. It's, it's, it's a huge problem. Modern day slavery in Africa is still a problem. It's not just a color issue. It is a, it's not, you know, you hear it. It's not just a skin issue. It's a sin issue. It is. And it continues. So we have to, as Christians, look at this from that perspective. So that's why I wrote this article. You can see in there, some of the African nations actually, like Ghana, actually formally apologized for its role in the transatlantic slave trade. These are the conversations that I, I wish that churches would actually have because in the end, we understand that Satan tries to steal, kill, and destroy us on so many levels. And what he's trying to do right now in our culture is he's having us relive some of this stuff. And, and it's all, so much of the motivation is bitterness and anger. And for those who need to do the introspection, because introspection is a good thing for every human being. God Help me look into my heart. Where, where have I gone wrong? And I'm not just talking about co- issue of color. On sin, period. And sin takes all kinds of forms. Introspection is a beautiful thing. But we cannot be motivated by guilt. We cannot be motivated by anger. We cannot be motivated by mainstream media. That by the, I don't know if you noticed, they don't have our best interests at heart. I mean, listen, mainstream media, I know it's called fake news a lot. And people think, oh, that's just a political statement. No, it's actually a reality statement. One of my favorite heroes is Frederick Douglass. Mm. And Frederick Douglass, when he lived, mainstream media was fake too. And what did he do? He started his own newspaper called the North Star because mainstream media refused to tell the truth about slavery. I mean, nothing's really changed. There is always an agenda. This is what frustrates me as, I, I'm, you know, I, as a journalist, that mainstream media often chooses advocacy over accuracy and opinion over you know, objectivity. They do it all the time. And sadly, so many Christians fall for it, that we just fall for it. We have to be willing to be proactive. And I know I'm going to give a, leave a lot of time for questions. So I'm just going to end with, with this. There are lots of things that we can do. We, um, there are lots of things that we have to do <laughs> as Christians. One of the things that we can't do is pretend that it's not happening. Um, this, okay, this share screen is getting on my last nerve. Okay, there we go. <laughs> what can we do? Um, <laughs> We have to be willing to look at things for what they are. And when we have these conversations, yes, we do listen. But we have to understand, too, lived experience, we hear this all the time. Well, you don't know my lived experience. I want to listen to your lived experience, absolutely. And we all need to put ourselves in other people's shoes. It's not just one group who needs to put themselves in other people's shoes. We all do. But see, here's the thing about lived experience. Lived experience often leads people to a lie. One of my friends who was bulimic, for instance, her lived experience was that she felt treated horribly. She was treated horribly by certain men in her life. And her lived experience led her to bulimia and led her to believe that she was obese and she was a stick. She was willing to, she was killing herself because she was believing a lie. Lived experience in and of itself is, is, does not point people to the truth. The hope is that in your lived experience, are you pursuing truth? Do you find God? 
And God, of course, is truth. And God is that constant. And so what can we do? One of the things that I felt was a really powerful thing, I worked with um, Sean Foyt in this and, some, and a team of other people. I'm not even sure everyone who was actually working on this, but it was a pledge, a biblical statement, a biblical statement on human value, on race and human value. And I would really encourage you to check this out. It's ourpledge.church. You may see the, the Sean Foyt URL, but the easiest way to get there, just go to ourpledge.church. For me, it's a powerful document in how we as Christians are supposed to look at the, the value and the dignity of every human life. How we are, we are the ones, Proverbs 31, 8 through 9, we are to speak up for the voices. We are to stand up for those who are literally being crushed and ensure justice for the destitute. That's what we are supposed to do. But we are, there's another verse that is really crucial for me. It's Psalm 89, 14, and it, I love this. David says, he says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, O God. An unfailing love and truth precede you. We can't get to justice if we don't get to the unfailing love and the truth first. And we are, we, we serve a God of justice. That's, that's what our lives are supposed to be. So it's not about, it's one or the other. We pursue justice. We pursue God. We love people. And, and when we, when you love someone, you want them to be free. When you love someone, you don't want them to feel like they're all alone facing a pregnancy all alone. When you love someone, you don't want them to be a slave to addiction. When you love someone, you want justice for them. And when you love someone, you are going to not only speak the truth, you're going to live it. I hear people say, well, now's not the time to, to speak the truth. Now's not the time. Now's always the time to speak the truth. <laughs> I even heard some well-known Christian author saying, you know, now's not the time to share the gospel. What? It doesn't mean that while, while someone's sharing with you their pain and their hurt that you're like, oh, but by the way, in Proverbs 31, 17, no, but there are ways that you communicate the gospel by being loving, by, by pointing out some truths and, and helping to redirect. Because a lot of times the fear and confusion that we have, and this is beyond color, mm. the fear and the confusion that we have is fed by a lie that we've not held in captivity. We're told to hold every thought in captivity. And we don't. And this is why we're seeing some of the manifestation of that pain, manifestation of that fear. We're seeing it lived out in cities across the country, in vile words being shared by politicians and celebrities, who I find funny. Like when LeBron talks about, you know, the end of the NBA is like a plantation. I'm like, sign me up for that plantation. What are you talking about? He's not a slave. I mean, this is the kind of mentality that... What ends up happening is real victims of racism, real victims of discrimination. They get passed over for those who want to obsess about their, their own fake oppression. Bubba Wallace. Jeez. Okay, Jesse Smollett. I mean, if you've got to make up your own little attack, come on. In the end, as a church, we should be the ones leading on this. We should be the ones saying, this is sin, whether it's racism, whether it's greed, whether it's idolatry, whether it's sexism, whether it's abortion, this is sin. And because we love, we're going to lead in on this. What, what has happened is the church has not led and there's been this vacuum. And what fills a vacuum? Brokenness. Unless we're the ones filling it with God's love, that is the only hope, that is the only possible source of unity, and that is the only hope of transformation. So with that, 
without going any deeper into the specifics, I would love to just open up to any questions that you may have. I'm so sorry I couldn't play those videos. They were kind of pivotal in some of this, but, you know, you just roll with things. Yeah, man. No, it's all good, man. Wow. wow. We're all giving, we're all clapping. Um, <laughs> Ooh, hearts burning. Let me try to spotlight um, us real quick. Um, so good. Man, well, thank you so much, Ryan, for coming on and doing this presentation. I, I will try to uh, link some of these videos. And I might actually try – I think I have that one video you were trying to play, so I might try to play that here in a little bit okay. and see if we can get some uh, sound going on it. But, um, yeah, man, that was that was whew, Holy Spirit-infused uh, factivism. And I love yeah. that. Y'all see why I love this dude, man, because he, he knows his stuff, but he brings truth and, and love. But and doesn't back you don't back down from saying what needs to be said. And I love that. So if anybody has any questions, we already got one. We're going to come to that. Just go ahead and type it in your bar here, and we will um, ask Ryan that. But before we get into the audience questions, maybe we can start with a few here. Um, kind of circling back, Ryan, to you said the, the presupposition of the movement being off. Um, or or maybe a distorted narrative. What the guys that know this that are continuing to perpetuate the you you talked about LeBron James a minute ago where he basically tweeted out I think on the back end of the Ahmad Arbery thing that something like we are literally being hunted Hunted. down every day. Um, and, and this is part of, and it, we even had friends after that, they were calling us, man, you, you know, it's just hard to be a, a black man in the United States, man. And, and, you know, everybody's taken on that feeling. But when you, when you talk with about the stats, you enlarge and kind of say, well, here's what's going on the past few years. What is the pushback to that from people that are, you know, on the other side of this issue yeah. that are, when you, when you bring that up, what, what is the pushback on it? Normally, they don't address it. They they deny that that's the case. They they say, for instance, that you know, even when I gave the example, the study from Michigan State University about how black police actually were found to be the the causal reason for death among other black individuals, they that's not that's that's just not true. That just can't be true. Well, here's part of the problem. It's kind of the same with the the abortion fight or or when talking about incarceration, they talk about the disproportionate percentage of those incarcerated. I don't know if I said this on your show before, but I I spoke to a group of young people, mostly black and Hispanic students. They were all high schoolers. And I asked them, we were talking about um, fathers and we're talking about incarceration. And they're like, well, so many fathers are in prison. I said, well, I said, that that's what we do here a lot that, it would seem like all the fathers are locked up. I said, but that's actually not true. I said, tell me what percentage of, of black males are incarcerated today in America that are 18 and older? What percentage? And they were saying, I'm not kidding. The lowest percentage was 85 and the highest was 95. And I said, you think 85 to 95% of black males 18 and older are incarcerated today? I'm like, yeah, yeah. I said, it's actually less than 3%. Less than 3% of black males are incarcerated today. But here, their fear is fed by a narrative that they're hearing from public schools, they're hearing from mainstream media. Now, yes, the, the percentage incarcerated is still too high, and it's still disproportionately black, but it's not 85 to 95%. So the problem that I find is that when I bring up some of these things, it will always be the deflection. Then it'll always go to the next thing. It'll always get, it's, it's always, you know, the goalposts being moved. 
they won't acknowledge this. I mean, how do you talk about the fact of, for instance, in that same session, I asked them, tell me the name of one white individual that was killed by cops. And this is a room full of probably 150 students and a bunch of adults as well. Not one person could say one name of a white individual. I said, this is part of the problem. And I gave them the stats for that year, which was 2015, because um, it was 2017, but they were only 2015 stats. I said, this is the problem. We don't know. And we get so angry about context that we don't fully grasp. So sometimes facts aren't going to get through, and I know that. I mean, it's not like I'm always throwing out facts, 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 but it, it is a challenge. And I will keep challenging people because that's, that premise is huge. I don't want my, my youngest son, Justice, whose skin is much browner than mine, much darker than mine. I love all my kiddos. But I don't want him to have this fear that he is, so, like LeBron James said, hunted down literally every time we go outside of the comfort of our homes. I'm not going to instill that fear into my son. I'm not going to instill it in the people that I, that I talk to and I share to. So I, I challenge them. For the, the Christians who, the, the way they will typically deflect and say, well, there is systemic racism, but, but define it. How do you define systemic racism? And what is it specifically? Because you can't fight a nebulous monster. If someone's saying, there's a fire outside, there's a fire. Are you going to run outside with a cup of water? With a fire extinguisher, you're going to call the fire company, the fire department. This is what we, we're doing with this movement. People don't know. What's the fire? Oh, someone just lit a match and burned a leaf. I'm not, say, I'm not comparing. No, don't misunderstand me. I'm not comparing George Floyd, which that was a heinous crime. We don't even know why the cop killed him. For me, the reason doesn't change the heinousness of the crime. It doesn't. But we don't know. But all, it's been assumed. It has to be because of racism. We've got these fires and we don't fully understand what they are. So that was a long-winded response to, to those who reject it. But I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop providing the context. As Christians, we can't go in blind. And this is how I feel so many leaders are just going in blind and you're swinging around. I'm like, no, that's, that's not even the issue. Actually, there is a problem right here and you don't see that. And there's a problem here. You don't see that. So my heart is that Holy Spirit, you're the only one who can convict somebody. I can talk to them, I'm blue in the face, and it, it may not get it across, but there are moments when the Holy Spirit convicts somebody and opens their eyes so that they can see with a little more clarity. That's good, Ryan. And some of these questions are going to be taken out of order because they relate to the topic at hand, um, but Zachary just wrote in, you kind of answered this, but maybe say a little bit more about it. So he said, when facts don't work, how could you recommend continuing the conversation? Now, is that like an individual conversation? I guess it depends on what the conversation is, because sometimes individual, you can have a conversation that's a little easier than talking to a group. Now, I speak to lots of groups, and sometimes you can get a, it can be a little harder <laughs> talking to groups of people. But one, we, we have to be willing to listen. And I think the best thing to do when you're dealing with something that is so heavy is ask questions. You know, just, just kind of, you kind of examine things by just challenging the person with a question. And I mean, gently, I don't mean like coming down on them or being condescending in any way, shape or form, but ask questions, ask questions that will lead them to, 
to maybe rethinking a certain something. And I know in the listening, there's, there's, there can be a sharpening that happens, but you have to be willing to, and sometimes we have stories. I have, and some of us may not have personal stories that relate. So I can use the stories of growing up and experiencing racism throughout my life. And I can use those personal stories as well. Sometimes you can use the personal story of somebody else. Sometimes you can be an example of like a pastor, like a Vodi Bakum, and say, hey, here's a, here's a black pastor who has nine children, seven of whom are adopted. And here's, you know, he said this about, about fatherlessness in the black community, because that leads, fatherless, fatherlessness in any community leads to all kinds of negative outcomes. So there, I think there are ways that we can have conversations that don't necessarily hinge on facts. They can hinge on personal stories. Um, and then, of course, we've got scripture, people. <laughs> scripture is the, the great illuminator. We've got, we have so many, so many verses within scripture that talk about, you know, we are, we are one. Um, th- these are important things that we have to be able to, to focus on. Um, you know, when you talk about a Christian worldview versus, and I'm going to try to get one of these here. Um, I don't know if this is going to come up or not, but these are some of my, I gave you Proverbs 31, 8 through 9, Psalm 89, 14, Galatians 3, 28. This is why it's important. Galatians 3, 28, which says that neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, we are all one in Christ. The best go-to is the scripture because it puts things all in the right context. And that's why we have to judge everything. Ephesians 4.14 talks about, do not be like immature children tossed to and fro by every wind of new teaching. Do not be tricked by lies so clever they sound like the truth. Come on, people. We... And I used to, be- oh, I worked in so many ministries, particularly in the city for years and years, and I was adopting the anger of myself, and I was actually being tossed to and fro. So this was just not even that long ago that I had to start examining things for myself and saying, wait a minute, does, does this match up with the word? And do my actions and reactions line up with the word? So that, that's my encouragement. We, we can't always use numbers. I mean, we always have to be compassionate. Um, for me, I do like a little dose of sarcasm in there too. So <laughs> I'm just saying we all relate differently to people. I'm just saying. So, so we, we have to figure out, you know, now if you're talking about a group of people and things like that, that those are some different dynamics, of course. But what we can't do is to retreat from the things that we know are true. Oof. And my heart breaks when I see church leaders doing this over and over again, not coming from a biblical perspective, because what people need is hope and healing. They don't need more political hucksters. We have enough of those. Mm. Wow. That's good. Really good, Ryan. Um, and we'll jump back to these audience questions in a minute while we're, while we're on this topic though. So I think you're, you're right. Like when you talk about the stats, the premise of the movement um, launching, it doesn't, there's a big gap between the, the actual statistics and the fervor right. of revolution. <laughs> um, but right. would you, what would you say though, in response to, you know, there are many, many stories that we, we hear from our black brothers and sisters of having run-ins with the cops that didn't necessarily right. turn into shootings, but um, there seems to be enough anecdotes of this reality of being um, stereotyped and pulled over in a neighborhood and all this kind of stuff. And for no reason, apparently other than driving while black, 
Um, right. Where do you categorize that? Is that, and I love your, the way you said systemic is not um, the same as specific racism, right. but how, how do you, how do you, how do you, would you acknowledge the reality of that? Or do you think that's part of the narrative creation as well? Where do you place that? Well, you can't deny the history of discrimination, racial discrimination in this country. I'm not, and I'm, I'm a recipient of that DWB. So I, I understand that. Thank God it wasn't violent. It could have easily had been violent. So it's not denying those things, but it is acknowledging there has been a, a, an exponential change um, since the, the civil rights movement in uh, the fact that people were even being prosecuted. Now, there are issues in cases where um, police officers were not held accountable, and they always need to be held accountable. Um, that's, that's not to deny that, but there again, we're talking about, there are two different things because being discriminated against, you know, the DWB and the anecdotes that also goes into, well, how many, how many white people have been pulled over by cops over asserting their power? We don't know that because no one really talks about that in, in, in light of, oh yeah, I was pulled over by a cop. I'm white. I'm, I'm Asian or whatever. So we don't hear any, any of that. I, I mean, there are people who abuse their power all the time. I mean, look at an older sibling. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Older siblings abuse their power all the time. Mom and dad step out. They're, I was one of them. I mean, I had five younger than I did, than <laughs> I was, and I had seven older than me. But there was a time in the house when the older ones had left, and I was the oldest one there. And I will admit I abused my power. That is kind of human inclination. Now, this is why I believe that there should be um, police reform. I believe, you know, I believe, you know, the cameras, there should always be cameras for every stop. There are reforms that are practical and that, that help those, those, the majority of police who don't abuse their power to be protected and not to be demonized with, with those who, who are corrupt. You know what I mean? So I, I'm not denying that that, that that happens, but we have to be very careful because what ends up happening is there's this collective sort of thing, this kind of amalgamation of all the, 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 the wrongs, whether actual or perceived. And then you talk in, in addition to that, you know, the LeBron James were literally hunted every time we go outside of our homes. Um, and that leads to a narrative that we have to question, well, which parts of this are true, which parts aren't true. No one should ever be discriminated based on their color. Um, no one should be discriminated based on their gender. And there are only two genders. No one should be discriminated against because of their weight. No one should be, dis- I mean, but there are many factors that lead to discrimination and we should address those things. Um, absolutely. It's just hard. See, this is why the Bubba Wallace's and the Jesse Smollett's aggravate me so much. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Bubba Wallace, NASCAR, talked about the noose in his, his garage there. But that noose, the FBI said that that noose was there months. And it was back in October, November. It wasn't planted there for Bubba Wallace. But here's the thing. It's where it just reinforces the thing. Like, I'm always, I'm always depressed everywhere I go. But that noose, that garage pole, had nothing to do with Bubba Wallace. But what, what is interesting is that there is always the reaction to certain things like just a noose. I remember we, we placed a a meme online that said Planned Parenthood kills more black lives in two weeks than the KKK did in a century. And we had an image of a noose 
and we have the, the website, radiance.life slash PPKKK. Because one, Planned Parenthood's board was filled with KKK leaders. We wanted people to understand Planned Parenthood's history with the KKK. But all people saw was the noose, and that's what we were reacting. And they thought, this is racist. I'm like, wait, do you understand what's being said here? That they are killing more lives than the KKK did. And, by the way, their board members were, were what was it, the, the Grand Cyclops? I don't know what crazy names they have for the KKK. Grand Cyclops of the KKK. People need to understand history. They're being all offended, but they're being offended by what they don't know. And so this is part of the thing where we're, we're reacting so much to historical moments and historical artifacts and not even understanding the history, not understanding you know, the Mar- Margaret Sanger who, was, who boasted about speaking to a group of KKK members. And then she had many other uh, offers to speak to groups like that. So... <sighs> It's almost like, um, I, I guess this is where I've come to personally. I've experienced these things throughout my life. And I'm not going to say, oh, mine was worse than yours. Or, and there are people who's obviously far worse than my experience. And I've experienced this racism and I've had to deal with the racism. And I still have to deal with the instances of racism because people are just ignorant. I mean, of any hue white, black, and every you in between. People are just, humankind is, is sinful. But what I refuse to do is to see the world through the broken prism of race. Ooh. I will not do that, regardless of what I've, ex- I've experienced. Because I cannot say simply because of the hue of your skin, you know, which I think you were talking about with Neil Shendi, these two groups, the oppressed and the oppressors. I refuse to see the world that way. I refuse to see myself as the oppressed. As many times as I've gone through some difficult circumstances, I, I have to see myself as a victor. So that, that changes the way that I, that I see things. Hmm. Man. Powerful, man. And you know, we were, Nerva was watching something last night with uh, Shelby Steele. And someone asked him, you know, in this day and age where even to say what you just said, and and I don't I know you get it. I don't want to say that you don't get it. I think you get it even worse than everybody sometimes. I've seen your interactions on Facebook. But especially sometimes as a white Christian, you know, to even to even bring up a question about the narrative to say, man, is it true? Is to invite at this point just all oh, sorts of all sorts of reaction and accusations of racism even from other white christians mainly from other white christians in the church right. many times it, it makes me laugh because many of these jokers are from like you know upstate new york that never met a black person in their life until last week and all of a sudden they're the leading thinkers on anti-racism but um anyways exactly. i'll probably edit that out but um, <laughs> But it's but, true. But you know, it's true. I don't know what's happening with these jokers. Um, but you know, it, it it is interesting that Shelby said. You know, he said he called on. He said, "I'm going to tell you the same thing that I have to do. You have to have moral courage in this day and age to be willing to just say the truth um, and and not care what people heap upon you, what they call you." And and you referenced earlier, Uncle Tom. There's a there's a documentary just came out. Last oh, week. yeah. I don't know if you saw it yet, but it's, it's I, I, I love a lot of the guys, a lot of the people, yeah, really men good. and women in that. Yes. Yeah. Really good. recommend it, by the way. Yeah. If you, if you yes. have a chance to watch it. Uh, really good. Um, but um, 
we did have a question kind of related to what you just said here. And, and I, I apologize if I mess up the name here. Um, will you do this question? I'll make you read the name. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. From Osawayam. Osawayam. Forgive us for butchering the name. That's a really cool name, by the way. <laughs> Maybe I could unmute them and have them say their name. Hold on. I'll do that. You can unmute yourself and teach us how to say your name if you're still here. If that is your name, be, are you there? Are we messing it up? Okay, there you go. Yeah, how do you say your name? <laughs> One more time. Osawaim. Oh, very yeah. good. Where are you from? Nigeria. Oh, oh right. very good. Osawaim. Well, welcome, Beautiful. man. Thank you so much. You want to just ask your question to Ryan then since you're here? Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I was watching um, a video, the grip, the grip, Gripvine TV. It's on, on YouTube. So it's, it's a bunch of... Mil- of millennials and um, just they, they talk about social issues and right. in, in, in the U.S. So um, they made a statement. I think the, the, the discussion was about systemic race. You know, can black people be racist? And one, one of the panelists made this statement. Black people can't be racist because race is a social construct that is built on power dynamics in which black people as a group at the bottom of the power dynamics. So I was thinking, well, how do I respond to this? Because I have been, I've watched your videos where you invited Neil Shen V and all of that, but um, I wanted to know how to respond to this. Yeah. And can I jump in before you, th- thanks for that question, man. And thanks for joining us today. Um, I'll jump in too. I think that right away when you said you're watching a video with millennials on this topic, okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I heard I, I heard somebody say the other day because I I could say this because I'm a, I'm on the upper edge of millennialism. But somebody said they don't trust anybody that hasn't been dead for a hundred years. <laughs> that's just a thought. Um, but yeah, why don't you jump in on that, Ryan, and, and help us out, bro? Well, there's so many issues with that. First of all, race. Yeah, it, it's a human construct, and as a church, we should. It's not a biblical construct at all. So. The problem is we're actually using the language of the world. This is what frustrates me. So even by saying racism, we're acknowledging the, the made-up constructs, which happened in the 1700s, Carl Linnaeus, who you know, is the father of taxonomy, who came up with these categories. We're, we're accepting the lie. This is part of the frustration. Uh, but I understand okay. we, we kind of have to use the same language in a way. But this is the ridiculousness. So this is I love when people... Um, believe in the per, the perpetual subjective nature of the meaning of words. So you can't be racist if you're black. Well then, because you're, because you're never in a position of power, which is, is a ridiculous thing. You don't have to be in a position of power to be racist. An old white man sitting on his porch, who's gasping his last breaths from some sort of, you know, breathing apparatus can call some child walking by the N word and that's a racist thing for him to do. Does he have any power over that, that child? Or does he have, maybe, it was, maybe it's a, you know, a millennial walking by who's black and he's calling him some racial slur. It's not, a, it's not just a system of power. Unfortunately, it's a, it's a frame of mind that, that exerts this. And any hue can exert it. The fact that slavery existed, two of the countries that apologized, Benin and Ghana, officially apologize for their role in transatlantic slave trade. Well, obviously those black kings and those black tribal leaders had power. And unfortunately they used that power to sell out 
other human beings. So what do you call that? I mean, we, we look at it in some, in some African nations, we, we call it tribalism, which still exists in so many, I mean, but tribalism isn't just in Africa. It's people tend to get in their little cliques and, but, but it's ridiculous to me for someone to say that black individuals don't have power. LeBron James has more power than I do in the physical sense. Um, Colin Kaepernick has more power than you do, Seth Reddy. But yet, Colin, of course, Colin is mixed too, but I guess he's just kind of denied all the, the white part of him. But anyway, it, it's not a system of power. I reject that whole assertion because then what do you call it when someone is so grotesquely racist toward white people? Unfortunately, some of those millennials will say, well, that's justice. They're getting, their, they're getting what they deserve. Do you know what I mean? What do you then call it? If you're referring to someone and degrading them and dehumanizing them based on this fake construct of race, I mean, we have to call it racism. I mean, you can call it discrimination, I guess. But this is, this is that whole false dichotomy that only white people can be racist. And it, it, what it does is it further uh, solidifies this whole thing of the oppressed and the oppressors. The oppressed can never be racist. Because they're always oppressed. I mean, there have been black people in, there are black people in, in positions of power. Oprah has no power. Oprah is probably one of the most influential black individuals on the planet. Of course they have power. Barack Obama, as a biracial president, our first biracial president, he had a lot of power. The attorney general, also black, during Obama administration, he didn't have power. Jay Johnson, who was the head of the Homeland Security, black, he didn't have power. So I, I just reject that whole ridiculous argument. Because what it does often is it excuses the, the vile sort of racism that does exist, that is acceptable toward whites. And as a Christian, it shouldn't be acceptable for any of us. No matter who it's coming from, no matter who it's going to. Mm, that's good. Here's a question from Veronica. I think this is a good, good thought. She says, I have seen the examples of Nehemiah and Daniel repenting corporately for Israel's sin as justification for corporate repentance and guilt over the sins of America's past or denominations or what? Let me read that again. I've seen the examples of Nehemiah and Daniel repenting corporately for Israel's sin as justification for corporate repentance and guilt. Okay, do you think this is a good comparison or is corporate repentance not really relevant to the situation at hand today? I love that. I guess she's referring to, you know, the, the attention to the white race to repent corporately. I know you've seen those videos of just people kind of walking down the street. Hey, because of your white skin, you're guilty of this racism mm -hmm. in history. And what are your thoughts on that? That's a good question. <laughs> I can predict what you'll say, but... Well, it's, it's very different, first of all, for someone to be repenting for an entire nation willingly and voluntarily to someone being forced into genuflecting and doing bizarre things like Chick-fil-A CEO, Dan and Kathy, shining millionaire Lecrae's shoes. shoes. Yeah, I saw that. So 
there, there's a huge difference between the willing acknowledgement that as a nation we failed. Like, for instance, we can, we can acknowledge America's failed on, on a lot of levels. Um, every nation has. But thankfully in America, the freest nation on earth, justice has eventually come and still is eventually coming. There's no nation like America. There's no nation with the freedom. There's no nation that is as ethnically diverse as our nation. And yet, well, up until the last few months... <laughs> as peaceful and, and, and loving. I mean, we really are united on so many levels, but it's this thing where the collective guilt, I mean, as, for instance, I think as Christians and as the church, we can apologize collectively. And this includes the fact that we have predominantly black churches still in 2020. Um, we talk about the, the lack of integration in these majority white churches, or they'll say in evangelical churches, well, what about in the predominantly black Baptist churches? Isn't that a problem? I, I think the collective sin that we can all, you know, just repent to God for is God. I'm sorry. I haven't, I haven't loved my neighbor mm-hmm. as myself. I, I don't like the, well, one, the Black Lives Matter movement isn't gospel centered. So they're not asking for anybody to actually repent or, or forgive. So that's kind of out of it. So that's why you can't really compare what Daniel did um, in that instance. I, I do think it is helpful for us all in, in areas where, where we have failed. I, I think the church has failed to talk about a lot of things. Um, I, I heard a video recently with, I think her name is Jada Edwards. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. Uh, it was one church, one community church or something like that. But she was saying the reason why racism is so much more important is because she said there is no argument in the church about whether or not abortion is wrong. And I thought, what planet are you on? I would say the majority of churches don't even mention abortion. Um, That was a really strange statement because what ends up happening is that racism is elevated to the sin above every other sin. And yet God sees all sin as contrary to his nature there there's no like worse than except unless you're talking about apostasy but they're all the same they're all vile they all contradict the nature of god so i i I don't like that whole uh attempt and that that it just doesn't seem sincere at all like there are so many different people guilty of as i was mentioning the transatlantic slave trade took a whole lot of different people. And then there were the white people who were saying, this is evil. This is wrong. This is a sin. So do you rope everybody in? This is, this is where I think there can be repentance, but it cannot be a color-specific sort of repentance. I think as a church, we can repent for the things that we've not addressed, the things that we've not talked about, the things that we've not pursued, the justice we've not fought for hard enough. Absolutely. but I. I won't accept this sort of us and them dichotomy that is being created every time we see these apologies. Mm. Mm. Man. Yeah. So the next question I had for you here, Ryan is, um, you know, you talked a little bit about what these organizations, the black lives matter movement, started by the three women and then the four BL, I forget the order of the letters, but um, you know, one of the things that you'll hear sometimes in this as well, you know, 
Christians say they can report, they can um, support the Republican Party, for instance, or they can support Trump in some instances, and they don't agree with everything they do and say. So why can't we apply that to the Black Lives Matter movement? What would be your response to that? Well, you had to bring up Trump. Thanks. Uh, of course, I guess I first brought him up when I gave the example of the tweet. But this is a very interesting thing because we live in a culture right now where, you know, evangelicals are being blasted if they voted for Trump. When we had the, the, the choice between Trump and Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton, whose worldview, in, in my personal assessment, was so diametrically opposed to a biblical worldview. But here's the difference. It would be different if Trump were out there promoting adultery and celebrating adultery. If Trump were out there promoting the things, actively promoting things that were actually contrary to, to a biblical worldview. Now I say that and I cringe 80% of the time he tweets. So I am not denying that nonsense. It is. <sighs> but then on the other side, you've got such radicalism, like with the black lives matter movement there, there's not, a biblical stitch in any of it. So, for instance, Matt Chandler says, you know, every organization has light and darkness. And I, I would like to ask him, because he, he was trying to justify supporting Black Lives Matter movement. That, that's not how it works. <laughs> I mean, would you partner with the Nation of Islam? I, I've been approached, our organization has been approached, the Ratings Foundation, to do billboard campaigns for uh, some leaders in the Nation of Islam because they're pro-life. I'm like, I'm glad you're pro-life, but you're really racist, you're anti-Semitic, and you hate white people, so I, I'm good. <laughs> we'll partner with somebody else. You can, I mean, light should not have that kind of fellowship, that kind of intricate partnership with darkness. Do we? Of course we reach out to those who are lost, but this is not an evangelistic sort of thing when you are politically partnering with a movement that is working against your very interests. For instance, they don't mention fathers. You know why they don't mention fathers? Because in their About Us under the Black Lives Matter Foundation, they say that uh, we want to do away with heteronormative thinking. Well, of course you do. That's why they only mention, they say mothers, parents, and villages. Well, guess what? The villages are suffering because fathers aren't there. And it's not just the black community. We've got a nationwide epidemic of fatherlessness. So Black Lives Matter movement, <clears throat> which deliberately ignores fathers and erases them for a reason. I can't partner with them. We serve, we serve the God of the father. I mean, the, he's a father to the fatherless. Mm. How are we going to partner with an organization that, that, that rejects yeah. fatherhood? So I, I, I can't. There are so many... There are times when you can align with someone who may be, you know, for instance, I've aligned with even the NAACP that sued us. We, we aligned with state chapters of the NAACP because they wanted to join us in a pro-life campaign in Ohio. Al Sharpton's network, um, some of their grassroots activists joined us, which was, it was the most bizarre coalition I think I've ever seen. It was right to life groups, pregnancy centers, maternity homes, Al Sharpton's national action network activists, NAACP chair of Cleveland. It was a beautiful coalition and we were aligned with with the, the whole right to life. But the, the difference is you've got, and, and the pe those activists, they were self-professing Christians. But you, you really have a Black Lives Matter movement that at the heart of, at the heart of it wants to, I mean, they, they talk about erasing white supremacy. Well, then what are you replacing it with? Black supremacy? Because that's not going to work. 
That's why one of the videos I want to show you was from Martin Luther King Jr. And he said, let us be dissatisfied until that day when no one will shout white power. Well, no one will shout black power, but we will all shout God's power and human power. I'm with him. So it, we, we have to use discernment in who we partner with. And you cannot partner with someone who's trying to literally dismantle, as we're seeing statues being ripped down left and right. And now, thanks to Sean King, they want to remove statues of Jesus. I mean, this is, to be honest, we're told not to have any graven images. So I'm not a fan of the graven images of, of Jesus anyway, but literally want to dismantle Christianity. Mm. This is why the church, when it's, when it's doing what it should be doing and it's leading, then those who need the real rescue and hope, they're the ones who follow instead of the church following a broken movement right off the cliff. No, that's great, Ryan. And, you know, to me, I, I'm, a, I'm surprised a little bit to hear that Matt Chandler said something like that because to me that represents really sloppy thinking. Um, because I, I think there, it should be obvious that there's a line, for instance, um, we wouldn't want to post the Nazi flag or say some positive slogan for Nazism, even though Nazi ideology, for instance, held a commitment to strong national defense and even had a strong, um, a solid education for youth as their values, even though you might say, well, that's light. And there's light and darkness in every organization. So therefore, right. swash to cut up. Or right. even, the Confederate, no. even the Confederate flag, right? I've, mm. I've always, you know, and I get it. People have different values in that. But I've always, I think slavery is so attached to that. It would, be, it would not be wise for, in my view, to, you know, fly the Confederate flag. Um, right. Antifa, you know, I'm sure they have, there's something in the organization even the name anti-fascism, we would say, yeah, I'm, I'm anti-fascism. Right. Um, would it, would you want to then partner with that organization? Obviously not. So I think that kind of thinking is like, here's, here would be my response. What, and I want to know what you'd think about this, Ryan, but I think you have a spectrum, right? You have like, obviously no perfect and no completely evil organizations, right. but there, there's right. a, on this spectrum, you get to a place when you say, man, like you said, with your organization, you would not partner with that one organization. It's not because y'all didn't agree on everything. It's because the essence and the very core right. of the foundation was opposed to the core of what you stand for, what the Bible stands for. So right. I think that is something we need to be more careful and think about, man, what's the, what's the essence of this organization standing for? And in my view, if you were to look at a Venn diagram of what – the organization Black Lives Matter actually cares about for black lives. I think the if you had black lives here in the organization, there would be a very slender overlap. Right. Um, and I think the main compartment of the organization would be this Marxist um, tear down capitalism, tear down the nuclear family, and, and put this revolution in place. What, what do you right. think of, of that assessment? And, and if you were to look at it, I, th I would say at least maybe it's not as far as the Nazi flag, but I, I would put it toward that end way more than I would put it toward an imperfect but decent flag over here. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it goes back to how do we perceive sin? I mean, if theirs is not righteousness, then what is it? I guess we can't, we can't be like, well, it's kind of like 
unrighteousness light. I mean, there are things, I mean, it goes to the very contra- the very nature of God, contrary to the nature of God, their, their whole view of sexuality, for instance. That's devastating. We, what is the devastation? We, we talk about the, the consequences of the sexual revolution often of the 60s and 70s. Well, what do yeah. you think is gonna, are going to be the consequences of today's sexual revolution? And yet this is what they're heavily promoting out there. Um, yeah. the, the, the gender confusion. I mean, people, and I have friends who have come out of that, friends who still struggle with that. <laughs> and yet we say that we serve a God of transformation, and yet we don't give him the opportunity to transform. And sometimes that doesn't mean complete healing on this side of heaven for whatever the issue is. It could be addiction. It could be whatever. But we have to believe that God can, and he does transform all the time. But when you have a movement that... First of all, it's, it's all materially based. So the whole thing is if, this, if the material stuff is in the right place and it's redistributed, everything's going to be fine. No, it's not. This is a spiritual matter. You can redistribute all you want and you're still going to have brokenness. You're still going to have jealousy, which I find funny because in socialism, who are the ones who are the wealthiest ones? The leader saying, hey, everybody, you need to adopt this socialist system. Yeah, that works really great for the people who are in charge, never for the people who actually want some sort of change. So there are so many issues with the Black Lives Matter movement that it's not even worth trying to pick through all the mess to get to that. Like, for instance, they were going to fight for racial justice, but that's so nebulous. What does that mean? What does racial justice mean to them? How How does that get carried out? And when you look at the ways that they want to carry it out, I mean, by spreading black power, it's why the m4bl.org website has the black fist and everything, because it's all about black power. They talk about our identity, our positioning is black. Well, my position is Christian first, Christian in everything. And so how do we solve these issues? I'm not going to be able to simultaneously solve it while my color is more important Mm -hmm. than my identity in Christ. It just... Those are such conflicting things. Um, I I know there are people whose heart, they they, they want so bad to see change. Like, you know, I was talking about police reforms and I do believe there need to be some reforms there. Um, And you, you ask about Trump. I didn't, I don't know if I fully answered this. I know it's difficult for people. I, I, I'm so angry that as the freest nation on earth, that we actually had the choices that we had in that, in, in that election a few years ago. I'm thinking of all the, we have 320 million plus people in this country, and this is what we're left with? I'm serious. On the left or right, that's, it's really despicable that this is what we, but I will say that Trump's policies have been so incredibly better. Look, the lowest unemployment rate for African Americans and Hispanic ever recorded before the pandemic. You have, you know, the, the biggest commitment to HBCUs, historically black uh, colleges and universities by the Trump administration. I mean, opportunity zones, there have been so many instances of incredible benefit in the black community that of course get drowned out by mainstream media, just constantly yelling racist, 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 racist. I'm like what is racist anymore? I mean, you're now racist. If you say all lives matter. I mean, I think I talked about this with you, the, the uh, sports commentator who got fired because he was asked, what does he think about the black lives matter? And he's on Twitter. And he said, he said, all lives matter, every single one. And that was deemed to be racist. What is even racist anymore? We can't even agree on that. <sighs> There's just, 
going back to the people who I know whose hearts are to change, to, to bring about change, and they perceive injustice and they want to do something, I, I'm grateful for that. But here's the thing, because there are too many Christians who are apathetic, and that makes me, that makes me angry. No one should be apathetic about injustice. I mean, otherwise, what good is your Christian faith? What good is that carrying it, you know, putting your faith into action if you are unconcerned about injustice? Um, but, but you have apathy on one hand, and then you have the danger of lack of awareness on the other hand. And those two things are both dangerous. So, so in this, when we, when we talk about how should we pursue this, as with everything, you pursue it with discernment. Mm. And does this align with my biblical belief system? Can I, can I uphold, you know, the defunding and the dismantling of the police department? Is that going to benefit my brother or sister? Is that going to harm my brother or sister? I, I just feel like we don't ask enough questions about the reality of carrying out the objectives that are clearly stated in the policy platforms of these two of the Black Lives Matter Foundation and the Movement for Black Lives. Okay. That is good. Did you have something? To- yeah, with, with so many voices out there and so many hashtags and movements, how mm-hmm. do you research and find truth? Give us advice on mm-hmm. your journey. When you hear something, the latest news, what, are there any um, avenues that you trust today? Or, um, I mean, if 80% of it, I've, I've come to the point almost where if I see a headline, I'm just going to believe the opposite of what I'm reading because there's so much lies out there. But talk to us about how do you um, best research or come to truth with all the media that's out there. Right. Well, I, I read a lot of different sources. I mean, okay. everything from MSNBC to, to CNN to ProPublica to okay. The Hill. I mean, anything on the left, I will read. Okay. I read some of the stuff in the middle. I read, you know, Cato Institute and Reason.com. And then there's the stuff in the middle to the right that, that I'll read. And I agree with you. I don't ever trust a headline. I don't care who it comes from. I don't trust it. And unfortunately, too many people just read the headline. Yeah. And, and journalists, so-called journalists, they know, 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 this, know this any deeper than the headline. And that's, that's really a tragedy. What I end up doing is I, every time I read an article, first of all, I understand that there is a worldview. People always talk about, you know, news cannot be purely objective. We all have bias. The, the, the question is, is that particular journalist's bias or that organization's bias, is it going to compel you toward the truth mm. or is it going to lead you away from the truth? And so that's how we have to consume mainstream media. I'll read something. And of course, for instance, they talk about maternal mortality. I'll go back to that. And they talk about how, you know, maternal mortality among black women is three to four times higher. Yes, it is. But then what they don't tell you is, are the actual numbers. Uh, and so if you're trying to promote abortion by saying, you know, w- black women's maternal mortality rate is three to four times higher, they're more in danger. Well, then I'm always wondering, well, what are the complications? What are the causal factors? Yeah. Hemorrhaging, there's some of its drug uses, some obesity and diabetes. Those are actually some of the leading, the leading issues. Well, that changes things because that's, res- that's certainly not a result of racism, which is what Planned Parenthood is trying to tout now. They, 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 they talk about maternal mortality and the reason why black women uh, die during pregnancy is because of racist healthcare mm. professionals. Oh, but that no, being a, get, yeah, yeah well, they, they will sell, they'll, they'll sell you anything. But what I do is when I read an article, I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, so they, did, they gave this percentage. I want to know more. 
And so I go to sources. I will go to the data sources so that I can have a better understanding. And quite honestly, you have to do that with a lot of different things, whether it's on the, the left or the right. The, the, the issue is you have to be willing to be intentional about knowing what actually is. Mm-hmm. And it's never easy. I don't rely on just Breitbart or I don't rely on, you know, I said Breitbart as an example. I, I, I just, whatever comes in Washington post, even Washington times, New York times, even, which is laughable most of the time, but at least it gives me an understanding. Okay. This is what they're talking about. Let me find other sources. Let me find primary sources to find out if this is even true. So good. So it really is a, a combination of things, but my resolve is that you're not going to hoodwink me. I understand you've got a particular worldview. All I want is to know the truth. Come on. And it's on me. It's really on me to take the little extra time and find out what actually is true on this. Mm-hmm. And, and I know it's not easy. I'm a parent. I'm, I have four kids. We homeschool our four kids. We don't have all this free time, extra free time, <laughs> but... We, we have to make a point of being proactive and being intentional because the world at its heart is deceptive. Ooh, that's just the nature of things. And so if I want to be led to the truth, I can't expect the world to be, oh, by the way, here you go. I'm going to lead you right to it. No, I've got to be willing to put in some work, get my hands dirty. Mm, so good. That's good, Ryan. Uh, we got, we're going to come back to uh, Donna. I had a couple questions here, Donna Spencer, in just okay. a minute. Um, before we jump into that, though, um, I had a question for you. Would you say, just as an outcome, that the Black Lives Matter movement has had a positive effect? If so, what would they be? And then as, as an outcome, what would the negative effects be? And I'm talking about specifically for the black community. I'm so sorry. It- Cut out here. I didn't hear oh, the question. Yeah, I was saying, would you say there were any positive outcomes from the Black Lives Movement, Matter Movement for the black community and any, and any negative outcomes? And what would those be for the black community specifically? I think some of the positive outcomes of talking about the wrongness of discriminating against people simply because of their color is that maybe we call out some, some situations and things where that is happening. I I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that is actually a good thing. I mean, there are still some crazy racist folks out there. Thankfully, they're not the ones who are actually driving the conversation. I mean, people talk about, remember Charlottesville, they're talking about the the, the neo-Nazis in khakis, which was weird. I don't even understand that. Since when did like neo-Nazis decide, hey, we're all going to dress up in khakis and carry a tiki torch? Just weird. Um, but that alt-right, all that nonsense, I mean, they're broken individuals, but they don't actually really shape any of this conversation. And I think part of the, the benefit of, of this is that we're realizing, you know, the KKK, neo-Nazis, alt-right, um, whatever, they, they don't control the narrative. So that, that, that can be a positive of this. Um, I think the other positive is that truth ends up being spoken. So I, like my friends, Dr. Alveda King, the niece of Martin Luther King Jr. And you've got people like Dr. Carol Swain, who was a poli-sci professor at Vanderbilt. You get all these incredible individuals. I mean, Walter Williams and Thomas Sowell is one of my, my favorite writers. Read anything from him. Um, some of their truths are getting out. 
because of this. So that for me is the benefit because instead of just constantly getting a singular narrative from mainstream media, we're hearing from different sources. We're hearing from black and like, like Colonel Allen West, come on. I mean, there are, there are so many incredible individuals, even, okay, MRC, which is the Media Research Center, put together, put together this compilation of, of black individuals, celebrities, who were speaking on racism. Morgan Freeman, we talked about this yeah, briefly. Oh, come on. You guys need to awesome. look it up. Look up That's MRC really awesome. plus uh, Morgan Freeman. You'll see the video. But here you've got, you know, as far as the world's concerned, incredibly accomplished black individuals who were dismissing the mainstream cultural narrative that's coming out. Denzel Washington and, and, and others who are in this. And, and, for, and I think that's a positive of this. The negative of it is that, again, here we're, we're going to the polar opposite of what Martin Luther King Jr., who I, I think most of us hold in high, high esteem. I'm not ignoring you know, his, his flaws, but I will concentrate on the biblical truths that he was able to communicate. And the fact that he said many times, and he had all kinds of reason to hate white people. He did. Many people during that time had a lot of reasons to hate people because of the, the abuse and because of the codified systemic racism. But he said to not concentrate on the color one skin, but the content of their character. And yet what the Black Lives Matter movement says is first and foremost, black, 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 black. My identity, black. We have gone to the other extreme. So what we're doing now is categorizing people immediately. You're black, you're white. Well, you ain't black enough. You and Uncle Tom. You might look black on the outside, but you're not black. That's the destructive negative outcome of all this. Because we're going so far from that ideal, that ideal that our, our character matters. That's why when you hear these Black Lives Matter leaders and all these dis, um, disparate groups across the country who are chanting things like revolu re revolution, when Hawk, what is his name, Hawk Newsom, who's leading Black Lives Matter of Greater New York, says, you know, if the system doesn't work for us, we need to burn it down, figuratively and literally, we need to burn it down. That's a character issue. And he's a character that we shouldn't be following. So those are some of the negative outcomes because what there are so many people who excuse that kind of violent rhetoric and it's totally unacceptable. It's unacceptable to hear people talking about killing the cops and actually following through as we saw a few years ago in Dallas. That's unacceptable. Character matters. And when it comes to these issues, we can't, we can't be wrong. We can't be wrong on, on the, the main premise. Mm. We can't be wrong about this accusation. We see what happens. I don't know if you've seen in Minneapolis, but it looks like a war zone. And a number of our cities look like burned out war zones. We can't be wrong about what's going on. We mm. see the dangerous consequences when we are. That's good, Ryan. Um, well, here, I'm gonna go to uh, Donna Spencer's question here as we're starting to wrap it up. Um, she asked, um, she said, have, it's kind of a couple questions here. Haven't we created a system of levels of sin when we consider some crime, hate crime? Maybe this is a systemic thing that should change, question mark. And then not so much a question. I just haven't ever heard the idea of hate crime as a part of these discussions, particularly as we seem to be saying that the biblical perspective is sin is sin. Yeah. Well, is it Donna? Yeah. Right. First of all, I've written about this 
I wrote about this several years ago, uh, the, the kind of lunacy in some crimes being worse than other crimes simply because of motivation. I mean, if you killed somebody, that's a terrible thing. It doesn't matter if you killed them because they're a woman. It doesn't matter if you killed them because you were jealous of their money. It doesn't matter if you killed them because of the color of their skin. It's a heinous crime, period. I hate hate crime legislation because what it does, it elevates certain yeah. wrongs and certain motivations above, above others. I, I, I don't agree with that, especially as we're now getting this whole this culture of confused sexuality where now it's a hate crime to even speak the wrong pronoun. That's a hate crime? I'm not speaking fake made up pronouns. First of all, I love you and I will treat you with respect and dignity, but I'm not going to make use made up pronouns. And, you know, as with everything, as Christians, we affirm the broken, not the brokenness. Right. Mm. So with the whole hate crime legislation, yeah, I, I find it really problematic because the only, apparently the only lesser crime is if you kill a heterosexual white male, <laughs> that's apparently just not that big of a deal. But all these other reasons, that, that's why so the hate crime legislation itself is discriminatory. Um, so, yeah, I agree with that. And then it does place, it, it's kind of the same way the Christians see, and I was on a, a Zoom call recently where this couple said that racism is the worst sin in America. And I'm thinking, how do you gauge that? What measurement do you use? Because there are... A, over 860,000 unborn lives slaughtered by abortion. So if your gauge is death, because racism, the ultimate end to, to racism has, has often been death, but how do you compare that? Has racism killed hundreds of thousands in our country in, in 2019, like abortion did, the 862,000? Of course not. So how do you say racism is the worst sin? And then people will say, well, it goes back 400 years of slavery. Well, killing infanticide has been in existence since humankind has existed. It's gone back far much longer. So I, I, I really, it's, it's a dangerous thing when you say one particular sin is worse than another. Sin is wrong. It grieves God's heart. We should not accept it. Jesus did not die on the cross for us to tolerate sin. He died on the cross to save us from it. So sin is sin. And thank God we can all be redeemed from it. Some of us have testimonies of being redeemed out of crazy sin. I mean, look at Paul, former murderer. I mean, if, if, that, if a person like that can be redeemed, we could all be redeemed, which just goes to show sin is sin. Mm -hmm. Christ died for it all. We're the ones who decide that it somehow goes like this. Okay. And that's wrong. Mm. Great question. Yeah. Um, Let the church say amen. To while, uh, while, uh, amen. While, while we're here, too, <laughs> I'm going to post. Here's I'm sending this to everyone. That's if you are interested in giving to the Radiance Foundation, you can click on this link. Um, oh, support thanks, them. He didn't ask us to do that, but we just we try to support these guys because, like I said, they're on the front lines doing this stuff. You also, he's got great articles on their website. Um, anything you need, all all the factivism. Um, right. you, could, you could ask for, uh, what, what, what's upcoming for you guys, Ryan, that we can be praying well, for? Certainly the, the pandemic has changed, uh, things temporarily, but this is, I love how God works. God's like, I got this. I wasn't shocked by this. 
So what we do, part of what we do, we do uh, these multimedia talks, which actually work better than the Zoom one that I was trying to do. But uh, we do these multimedia talks in conferences, colleges, everywhere from Harvard to Princeton to HBCUs. It, the list goes on and on. We help raise millions for pregnancy centers. Um, so we do these events, 60 events, keynote events a year. And because of the pandemic, we've had five events, uh, five, five months worth of events canceled. Mm. But I love how God just works. He's like, oh, yeah, okay, so let's try this. And so that's part of what we do, but a large part of what we do is every day through social media, through our partners, our, the organizations we partner with, is we create content to help illuminate different situations. So that's why you'll find a lot of the videos, the memes, the fact sheets, and the, the articles on our website. We've got some billboard campaigns coming up, and we're excited about that. Some fatherhood ones, hashtag dads matter. And I have some op-eds, some more op-eds coming out on on the impact of fatherlessness. Um, of course, we're, we're working on my wife's pro-life, this book right here, pro-life kids book and creating a workbook for, for parents, for schools. I mean, this thing, I mean, we even have an image in here with the Edmund, you know, those who are marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma and tying it to the, the fight for human dignity in, in the womb. Anytime anybody gets to be the arbiter of human value, like anytime someone gets to say, you're a person, you're not a person, we all know that never ends well, right? Mm. So when you teach young children this and you tie it to historical moments, they get it. It's the adults. We're the ones who mess everything up and try to <laughs> explain things away. And then, you know, three novels later, we've, we've arrived at our justification. But anyway, so those are some of the projects that we're involved in. We're on Facebook for now. Twitter, basically, <laughs> Shadow Banners forever. So we're on social media. There's a new social media platform called Parlor, Which we're, we're, yeah, so we're just beginning that. Um, but yeah, just, just check us out on, on Facebook and some of the events, um, whether they're Supreme Court rallies that we're leading, um, maybe there's something that's near you and depending on how closed down your state will be, <laughs> I, I heard you guys are going back into a lockdown. Is that true? Probably. <laughs> wait, wait, have you actually ever gotten out of the lockdown? I mean, nah, we're living that lockdown okay. life, bro. <laughs> But, you know, it's amazing that God, God's got all kinds of avenues. Sure. Satan's yeah. like, he's got a few streets. But God's like, no, hey, I, I, I can now. work this out. And so yeah. I'm just so grateful that Bethany and I can do what we do, even in this, in this way, um, and still just, just illuminate the truth. And, and for us, it's carrying out 1 Corinthians 13, 6, where it says, love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. And we just keep finding different ways to do that. Ooh. Oh, and it's radiance.life, by the way. That's our website. Did I okay. say that? Radiance.life. Radiance.life. Shout out to Bethany. We love you. As, as oh. amazing as Ryan is, I mean, his wife, she is just as much on fire. The two of them together. He's as bad. So, love you, Bethany. But this has been amazing. Yeah, man. Thank and you so, so guys, we're going to, just so y'all know, we'll send out an email, but we're going to take this next weekend off because of July 4th. And we'll be back the following weekend with some more special guests. And we'll probably do maybe two or three more weeks. We're going to bring back a few of um, our contributors as well just to do a Q&A day. So everything you're thinking, if, if another question comes up, write it down, bring it back, and uh, we'll, we'll hope to get those answered and continue to follow Radiance Foundation. And we'll, we'll see you guys next time. We hope you enjoyed this installment of our open forum on race. We encourage you to check out all the episodes on YouTube so you can watch the full videos of the interview. Go to youtube.com slash freemindpodcast and there'll be a link in show notes to the YouTube channel. 
You can watch our interview with Neil Shenvey, Samuel Say, and now Ryan Bomberger there. We'd also love to hear your feedback. You can find us on Instagram at FreeMindFM and Twitter at FreeMindFM. We also have a Facebook page, FreeMindPodcastFM. If you haven't, we'd appreciate it if you took a moment and gave us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It will help us get discovered by more people looking for this content. And also, we have bonus episodes and question and answers from many of our special guests in the past. And you can access that entire back catalog by going to patreon.com slash freemindfm and support us every month with any amount. You get access to those bonus episodes and future bonus episodes, and it helps support the show. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time. 